Welcome to the July 2022 episode of A Brief Chat. I'm Jason Crane. The show is back, and I'm making some changes to make it easier for me to keep doing this far into the future. Starting with this episode, A Brief Chat will be a monthly podcast. Otherwise, its form is not going to change. It's just going to be interviews with anybody who interests me. They won't be super long, but hopefully long enough to get you into the person, too. They'll come out toward the beginning of every month, and that's that. I figure if I do it that way, A, it'll make it easier for me to keep doing it, and B, it won't overload you with content. Instead, kind of like a full moon, it'll appear once a month, you'll feel kind of happy about it, then it'll go away again, and when it reappears the next month, you'll feel kind of happy about it again. You can get a little bit more than that if you become a member of the show. You can go to patreon.com slash chat. And for a dollar a month, you'll get early access to every episode. Plus, because I'm going to continue taking a stab at van life, you'll get travel essays and photos and stuff like that. For $5 a month, you'll get all of that, the early access and the travel essays and photos. But you'll also get a bonus episode. That'll just be a monologue episode most of the time. Uh, It could be a little mini travel documentary. It could be just my thoughts on what's been happening recently. And that'll come into your feed once a month, too. So patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash a brief chat. For a buck a month, you get the essays and early access. For five bucks a month, you get the essays, the early access, and the bonus episode. Cool? Cool. On with the show. So uh, currently, I'm sitting in a parking lot between two rows of parked cars in North Adams, Massachusetts, uh, because this was just a completely random meeting with um, a writer and thinker and visualizer of the world who I've admired for many years, uh, and that's Michael Chavo. Man, it's so great to uh, to run into you, and thank you so much for, at the spur of the moment, agreeing to let me put a mic in your face and talk to you about the world. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's great. I'm glad to be sitting here in this parking lot with you. It's very strange. Somehow, because the gods love poets uh, a car alarm that has been going off ever since we started setting up out here just stopped the second we started recording so you know what can i say meant to be it it is meant to be um i was trying to think uh as i was setting up the gear how i first came to know of your existence i think it was from uh dan nestor um poet in albany uh who also teaches there i think at saint rose and i remember clearly uh and the first time I was ever in Vermont going to a bookstore expressly to buy a copy of Mad Song, which I had just learned about. Right. Um, and completely loving it. And then over the years, we've, we've kind of been in and out of contact. I will say that you had a massive impact, on, uh, completely unintended, I think, on your part, but a massive impact on my life not too long ago. In fact, 426 days ago, I happen to know. Because 426 days ago was the beginning of April, the first day of April last year, and you wrote a poem in which you mentioned me and tagged me on Instagram. And I decided at that moment, okay, I'll take part in National Poetry Writing Month too, and have written something every single day since then, all as a result of that one thing, That's which great. I would not have done otherwise. So thank you for that. Yeah. Okay, so now enough about me, enough about <laughs> our connection. Um I want to start, even though I think of you primarily as a writer, because of the way we mostly interact or have mostly interacted over the last several years, which is via Instagram, I have learned another thing about you that I I really like, which is that you are a great visualizer of the world, by which I mean you can walk through landscapes and pick out patterns and colors 
and minute parts of what otherwise might get kind of lost in the visual wash. And you find ways to, to highlight those things in the photos you take, which I really love. And I just wanted to ask you about kind of your approach to photography, if it's a conscious thing. If Just tell me more about it. Yeah, well, it's definitely not a conscious thing. Um, I there was uh, it was a few years ago a friend uh, who took photographs and who was using Instagram uh, recommended doing something similar, either just taking photographs or using Instagram um, as a way of as another way of uh, expressing oneself artistically besides writing. Um, and I'm you know I'm try to not be on social media too much but I think it was it was 2016 late 2015 um, so uh, I just started it and you know and he said just go out take photos and they may not be good uh, that's fine uh, but you you like anything you practice you develop an, an eye or an ear or uh, a foot for it and um, and so yeah I appreciate you saying that I, I have no I I just see something. I take the photograph. I maybe put a little filter on it on Instagram, but um, yeah, no, just things that kind of strike me. And um, yeah, there's no real rhyme or reason per se, or nothing, nothing conscious, as you put it. Um, not part of like some overarching multi-year project oh, to pull God. out patterns and. Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, I'm sure you know. I'm. I know there's a lot of sunsets. I know there's a lot of clouds. So in that sense, you know, you you get similar themes. Uh, but no, no, no grand uh, scheme. I, I, but I, I think in any in any way, any person or any artist who's putting things out there, eventually you're going to see a pattern because it's all coming from a, or being filtered through a similar source. Um, but no, then nothing, nothing. So I've always thought of of poetry, uh, certainly in my own life, as almost like. Uh, uh, a superpower by which I mean like it's it's like spidey sense or it's like a way to slow time or it thinking about looking at the world through the lens of hey here's a thing I might eventually write a poem about has caused me to notice many things I would not otherwise notice. sure um, and so I kind of wanted I guess to relate this idea of just walking around taking photos to maybe how you if it if it resonates with how you approach writing as well in terms of pulling kind of random things from your environment or I think so I think in the sense that if something strikes you you know you have to writers you know we need to be alone to be to write but we need to interact with the world in order to write about things you know so it's that it's always that push pull um, but uh, yeah I think I think with with language um, or with a, a image it, it comes to you, you get a phrase or something, um, or you, you hear a certain way of speaking or somebody says something, you know, I don't know if this, this will develop out of anything, but you know, you just notice language. So I'm, I'm driving around Connecticut yesterday and, uh, there's a car wash called Soapy Noble. And I don't know if it's a chain or anything, but I was like, ah, oh, Soapy Noble. It could be a gangster. It could be, you know, a, 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 a Got it by Voices song. <laughs> Could be anything. Um, and then there was another place called Mr. Tint, you know, which did Windows. And it's just things like that that just, you, you know, somebody might see it and go, oh, Mr. Tint, whatever. Yeah, car window tinting place. Yeah. Great. I just I just found it funny. Now, whether that comes of anything, I don't know. But I think it's the same way. You, you see a flower. You go, oh, look at that arrangement of flowers or a tree branch or a cloud. And it just, oh, let me take a photo of that. Let me write this down because it 
is floating through my head. I was just going to ask, are you the kind of person who has like a notebook or a memo on your phone or something that has 85,000 phrases that you've seen? Or? Yeah, I, not, I mean, a little bit of both. I, I go through these big phases where I don't, I don't write anything and I don't write down anything. I should. I should be more practiced at it. Um, and then there, I, I do have a, a Word document or a, you know, a text document of phrases or stanzas or just things if something strikes me. Um, a lot of it is dog roll or just stuff you need to get out of your head. Um, but, um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's in between. I should, be, I should be a bit more maybe practice at it or do it more daily, but um, I don't. Uh, I don't always. <laughs> but, the, you know, the, the daily poems, um, I, I have gone through phases where I'll, you know, I'll just start writing a daily poem. And in 2017, in that, that March of 2017, um, I hadn't really written anything worthwhile or really anything in four and a half years. And I was just in various different ways spinning my gears and, you know, my life and my work. And uh, that a voice, you know, that sounded like me, but maybe wasn't, you know, me talking to myself, just said, just write something, you dope. Just write about how you can't write, right? You know, just don't stop making an excuse. It's just writing. You know, just go and do it. Um, and I did. And that that started, so that first poem was fit just 15 lines in tercets and couplets, and each line just happened to be five words long or, or less. And the next poem the next day and the next day. And so after a couple of days, I just, I just happened to be writing that way. And I thought, well, there's a form. And for the next, I forget how many, but until, until at least maybe I think the next... June or July, I wrote a poem a day. Um, so that was a great run. And then that went away. And then I kind of picked it up again for a little stretch. And, uh, and, and yeah, so, so that's kind of how I've, I've operated. I, I should, when I'm really into something or I have a, a form or, or something I'm working on, then I'm writing every day. Um, but uh, in between that, it's just kind of, yeah, taking notes when something occurs. Uh, to me in the same way the, the photos like I haven't really posted much on my Instagram lately but you know maybe when I go back to Denver something something will happen you were just saying uh, you used the word should several times in there about yeah. like should be more practiced for yeah. example and yeah. I I often ascribe should statements to my writing too because although I, I started this interview by saying I've been writing for the last 426 days which I only know because my WordPress app tells me when I post a haiku how many that is um, but uh uh, this is that's rare for me. That's that's not how I normally operate. And I go through periods just like you described, where it could be years where I don't write any appreciable amount of work or any work at all. And often during that time, I will ascribe some should statements to that. And in the other part of my brain that tries to fight back against that, I think like, well, I want to write when I feel like writing is what I need to do. Like I've got stuff in to get out. And I've never been able to be one of those like. I get up every day at five o'clock and I write for 45 minutes before I start. The, like that's just never been how I am. So I just wanted to ask you about your, I know you use the word should, but that obviously that just happens in conversation sometimes yeah. too. How you actually, how you feel no, about writing as a No, I, I definitely agree with you there. I mean, I th there, I learned and I've been writing for, you know, a long time <laughs> since I was in eighth grade, <laughs> you know, in different ways. And I, I've, I've gone through periods where I didn't write. And I've, I learned that as I've gotten older and as, you know, life, comes in you have responsibilities and other things to do you know you 
that you get drawn away from that. So I think that's where it comes in, and that's important. So yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think um, it's sort of that chicken egg too, though. You know, if you were writing every day, even if you were like for months, you weren't writing. You know, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Maybe eventually something pops out, or maybe you look back. So, but I do agree. I, I think. Um, like I said, the the writer needs to go out and live life and be part of life, and when things occur to them, they should do it. And, and you know what Rilke said in Letters to a Young Poet: unless you have to write poetry, why? <laughs> like it's not gonna make you money. It's gonna take you away from your family and friends, and people are gonna think you're weird. And so, yeah, absolutely. Um, poets, um, not I, not in any way to describe myself as a genius, but as Gertrude Stein said, you know, to be a genius, you have to sit around doing nothing, really doing nothing. Replace genius with artist or poet, and I think that's it. You, this stereotype of the poet out in the fields, and but you're, you're just you're hearing something, you're thinking about something. There's some tone or sensation or color, or inspiration or muse, you know, that that you're waiting for. And I guess sometimes you can speed that up, and sometimes you know it's not there. That's the mad song was a case of I had this form in my mind of a paragraph with a certain number of sentences and I mean it came out of what it, the question what is the line and how do you how do you how can you put elements of lineated poetry into prose poetry those are a couple of the questions and I had this form and it was years of thinking about it I tried these these long kind of Henry Jamesian sentences and paragraphs and that wasn't working and um, you know nothing and then i got to the vermont studio center to, to work there as a, as a work study and again that voice just said look all you have to do is write that's literally your only job and that realization opened up the floodgates and this book this book-length poem was transmitted to me i was writing it down but there was something that was happening because i knew and i knew what the form was and it was gonna be 13 chapters and this and so i had an end point so maybe that was part of it, but um, yeah, it, we just. It, it, but it was maybe two and a half, three years of meditating on that form, and sometimes writing it, but a lot of just thinking: how does that work? How does how do I squeeze that out of my head onto the page? Um, and I think having that that art, that space all of a sudden to just do that just said okay do it that's it's your only responsibility right now. But then I wrote that in a stretch of ten days. I wrote the Mad Song in ten days, um, and and I arranged it. It was rewritten a little bit, but you know that's what it is. And but after that, my whole time, my whole rest of the year at Vermont Studio Center working, I was not nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, so that you know, like you say, it comes, it goes. I think there's things you can, like any kind of exercise, you can try to get into a, a place to receive it. Um, but I don't know if any writer or artist has the answer to how they did, you know. Yeah. I mean, maybe Thomas Kincaid, but, <laughs> right. you know. <laughs> you use the verb transmitted there. Are you, uh, tell me what you mean by that. I'm not going to. Oh, no. I mean, I, I literally, it was, and, you know, so the Mad Song is written in such a way where it is, it's a, it's hip hop, it's sampled. There are references and phrases that are, you know, slightly altered from, you know, other things um reference i mean it's reference but um it, in the same way that you know rilke had the, the elegies transmitted to him 
um, or or Jack Spicer talked about the aliens. It was whatever that is. Different poets and artists have different names for it. The muse this is what the Greeks called it. But this was it was just <laughs> writing it down. It was a very unusual. James Merrill might know what I'm talking about. It was a very unusual occurrence. And I remember about halfway through, um, because, again, I knew it was going to be, you know, 13 sentences in per this and then six in this and 13 chapters. But about halfway through, I sent uh, them to whatever I had to my friend Sam Amadon. And he said, well, these are really good, but they're really weird. And I said, yeah, I don't know where they're coming from. And if I ask, it's going to stop. So I'm just writing it down right now. And, um, yeah, it, it was a truly, uh, I mean, there's a lot of thing, other circumstances that went into it, but that's, that's how things happen. You know, it's then the stranger knocks on your door and you're not writing about Kublai Khan anymore. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's that's really wild. That's a great story. Um, I, 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 while you were uh, talking and naming some other people, I uh, into my head popped another major effect that you had on my life when I first learned about you, which was that I had never read any Emerson until uh, I started, uh, you know, kind of in a very tangential way talking to you, and because of you, I I did. Um, now I don't think I've ever really cracked. Emerson. I'm not sure. I I go back time and again, and maybe that's all that's required. I don't know, but I I don't feel like I've arrived at some deeper understanding. But I feel like uh, a you have, and b I'm very curious about kind of how that started and and where you feel you're at with it. Is it something that's still part of your life? Was it just at one point? Just oh, tell me more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Uh, being a New Englander and being, I was raised Congregationalist, which you know is very liberal. My father's Catholic, so compare it's very liberal, <laughs> you know, way of looking at, at Jesus and Christianity. Um, but I think every New England church has that strand of transcendentalism, and or just New Englanders have Emerson. You know, it's America has Emerson, but I think particularly New Englanders are, even if they don't know it, they were raised with some sort of transcendentalist thought. And I think that also comes out of a Yankee New England thought. I think it's, there's a lot of, again, chicken-egg thing going on. Just to interrupt you just for one second, because I'm always keen to define terms if for folks who might be listening. Can you just kind of give us a thumbnail of transcendentalism? Sure. So it's transcendentalism, um, I mean, you could Emerson and uh, Thoreau and Margaret Fuller and um, a lot of people in, in New England and around Boston in the in the 19th century started this it was a kind of a breakaway from the unitarian church um of a philosophy in, in it laid a lot of the groundwork for american thought it also laid a lot of groundwork for new age and and hucksterism and and stuff like that um it's it was it was influenced a lot by eastern thought um but again it also came out of the unitarian tradition of, of christianity um so in that sense i think i think if you think of taoism and and um and hinduism uh kind of fused with um uh new england christianity that's yeah it maybe feels a good, like good way to describe uh, it non-dual christianity yeah yeah, like yeah, that, yeah exactly exactly <laughs> sorry anyway, um, no no no, no absolutely yeah. um so and and emerson is is you know he wrote uh you know american uh philosopher and he wrote he it was very influential with the influential people of the time um and forming an american identity because we were so influenced well the white people were so influenced by England and trying to form our own separate identity in that sense. Um, 
and so yeah, I think that's always been there. Um, and I think, but I think reading Douglas Crace, who is a huge Emerson scholar and and uh, you know acolyte, and um, really he, a lot of my thinking comes through through Doug's thinking, um, and and his essays on Emerson have really helped me. Uh, understand him uh, a lot. So, I mean, I, I think the the writing style, I think once you get the tone of Emerson, and yes, you can read it, and he's very deep, you know, you're like, these thoughts are very deep, but I think there's also, a, there's a giant sense of uh, humor in there, a Yankee sense of humor. It could be, it's deadpan, it's black sense of humor, but it's there, and I think if you read it, if you can read it that way, that's maybe one way. It doesn't excuse, you know, if you find haughtiness or, like, even his wife would make fun of him. He's like, here's the rules for being a transcendentalist. You know, condescend to everyone and <laughs> think you know more, and he loved it. He was like, yeah. Um, and I think that's, it's, it's a, like Taoism or, or Zen, There's it's a very contradictory uh or, or, or aspires to be a very contradictory philosophy, um, and that's where Whitman, you know, yeah. is inspired from. Um, Whose so, birthday is today, by the way? We're oh, recording what? this on Whitman's oh, birthday. Wow. I just realized. How about that? So, yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, that's great. So yeah, um, but yeah, no, Emerson is. I think. I think. So what I learned through Doug, he, there's a Library of America paperback edition of Emerson, the Emerson's essays, first and second series, and Doug has an introduction to that, and he makes a few good points, and and uh, one of them is that because Emerson is so epigrammatic, right? You take these quotes, you know. Uh, uh, march to the beat of your own drummer, or hit your wagon to a star, and all these things that sort of you know, hobgoblin, you know, of little minds. We're so kind of inured by them. But if you re if, taking his essays as a whole and reading the whole thing, and and the they're sequenced in a certain way. So self reliance is one of his most famous essays. But uh, essay the series uh, his first series of essays starts off with history. So it kind of sets up the problem that the individual faces, but he he starts it off with saying, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, but any anything a saint felt, you can feel. Anything, these are just human beings, the greatest human beings that you can think of, just human beings. You have access to the same thing. If you're interested in, you know, sure. having access to it, uh, you have to be a part of it. Um, but you shouldn't feel inferior to these people you're a human being um and also he reminds us that of human nature that you know the i think i forget what essay but he says you know the greatest and it's very gendered but he's the greatest man alive now is the same as the greatest man is the same as napoleon like the way we think of people is is the same it's still there's still gonna be terrifying so the same terrifying things are the same but um yeah, I, I think I think reading the essays in order um, and kind of and taking them as holes instead of sentences um, is important. Reading it with a sense of humor um, and understanding that these were these were lectures at first. So, I mean, like I think with most great writing, if you can read it out loud, you get a different sense of if you understand again that it's a human being and not just like something you're reading for a school assignment. Yeah. It, it helps. Not always, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fair I really like the, the thing you said about the, the kind of dark sense of humor, which, um, uh, Moby Dick is one of my favorite yes. books. I read it most years. And, uh, 
most of my friends kind of know that about me, and I have no other friends who are fans of Moby Dick, really. <laughs> and but whenever anybody asks me about it, um, the the two things I do are are recommend Nathaniel Philbrick's Why Read Moby Dick, and the second thing I do is say if you understand that it's a comedy, yeah, it's way easier to yeah. read. Yeah, um, obviously there's there's lots of heady stuff and lots of deep stuff it's not all funny but if you get that most of it is in fact funny yeah it totally changes uh, yeah. your approach and i'm going to take that i have never thought of emerson through that lens but i am now going to t- try to take that lens into yeah it. and i think i think in different because you know melville thought emerson was you know way too optimistic yes and <laughs> so again i think but i but i think that and yes there is that but i think with emerson you have the optimism but you also it's tempered I mean, um his essay experience um and maybe more so in his early essays i think this pie-eyed you know poe hated him really hated the transcendentalists um you know oh everything's one human nature is wonderful no um but i but in his, his second essay um, in experience he talks about his five-year-old son dying i, I forget maybe scarlet fever or something but he dies and he says and this is a very zen thing um or a very taoist thing i i think of actual story that could relate to it because no matter how much i grieve for him i can't get him any closer to me and it's 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 very powerful he's saying this about his five-year-old son but he's not saying not to grieve he's just saying that there's a point in which you have to stop like it's it's not going to help anything it's only going to hurt and there's a story uh it, it might be apocryphal about the taoist philosopher zhuangzi um, who he's, uh, his friend comes along to his house and his wife, Zhuangzi's wife has just died and his friend comes along and he finds Zhuangzi, he's like beating on a tub in his front yard and his friend's like, what do you, like, your wife just died, shouldn't you be like mourning, shouldn't you be a little more, you know, somber? And he's like, oh no, I mean, I was, I was sad at first and I cried and I did all the things that people in grief do. But then I thought, well, you know, who was she before she was born? And, and who was she, you know, this is just a transformation. And so, therefore, I said, how can I be sad about it, you know? And, again, that's not like, oh, you know, don't be sad. It's, yeah. it's showing a process. Um, so, and, and I think, you know, to your point about Moby Dick, I tried to read Moby Dick when I was younger. And I, and I forget at what point I eventually picked it up and got it in the just the beginning it's like well, you know after call me ishmael <laughs> yes whenever i feel like knocking the hats off people's heads <laughs> exactly whenever i get the hypos or and i'm like i get i know this voice and yes. i know that feeling and and you're right because there's that and then the next chapter is a different one then there's a play and then it's yeah, yeah it's it's absolutely so i think i think with a lot of those new england writers i think with, just with a lot of writers i think a lot of so-called serious writers not all of them because some of them aren't funny but you have to have the, you have to see the sense of the human which is i think what i mean by sense of humor the humaneness of the kind of farcical nature of the existence, you know, the absurdity of it. And I, I don't know. I, that's what I see in Emerson. Um, I definitely have a lot of issues with Emerson and a lot of things I disagree with or things where I, you know, I mean, he writes about like the, the Anglo-Saxon race and it, it's just really, I mean, and that's the groundwork for all the things we have after it. Not only him, but he didn't help, um, even though he opposed, you know, the Indian removal and did good things, but... You know, so I'm, and and I think that's with any writer. You can't, I can admire them, but I'm not there. I'm not them. 
so I don't have to stand by anything that Wall Stevens might have said or written, but I can take what you know I do like yeah. from them. So, yeah. So we're uh, we're getting to the close here, but I, to bring it back up to the present and to turn it back to you uh, specifically, where where does uh, this era find you in terms of? writing are you in a period where you're working on things or are you in a period where you're taking a break where yeah where things like i that? mean a little bit of both um i've i've been kind of working on some prose stuff really just sketches of of ideas but and i don't think it's anything revolutionary or different um but maybe kind of a synthesis of um you know james Frey, a million little pieces so he writes this so-called true story but it's completely made up um, I'm trying to write elements that are sort of biographical but are told through fictional stories. Now, that's any writer. But, for example, um, writing a in, in the form of introductions or forewords or prefaces. So that's kind of a framing. So one of them would be the introduction to this uh, a literal anarchist cookbook um, that was created by this Italian anarchist woman in the uh, 18th century. She basically lived to be a hundred years uh, old and it was it was a, a book that was you know basically recipes where there was a fad where rich people would be cooking for themselves but since they don't want to cook it would turn out not to their <laughs> liking um, but the idea would be that her name would be Yolanda Lachardi which is my grandmother's name um, so just trying to find ways sort of like Borges or um, uh, Oh, Pessoa, you know, so that kind of, you know, so you're telling your own story, but you're, it's fictional. Um, so the idea of the framework, uh, the framework of the introductions and the forewords is really kind of keen on. So that's, that's kind of what I'm working on right now. Just kind of sketching stuff out. I was always writing down lines for poems, but, but nothing major on that, on that front. Well, this is, uh, I should point out, by the way, that uh, we're sitting in a parking lot in North Adams, which is a town that neither of us lives in. Um, I, however, while we're recording this, I do live fairly close to here. By the time you are listening to it, that's also no longer true. And uh, Michael lives 2,000 miles away. Uh, he just happened to be in the area. This happened to work out. We had no plan for an interview. And you were, we are literally sitting in front of my parked van on a little bit of sidewalk between two rows of parked cars uh, with my van's house battery powering the recording. So you, that's extremely kind of you to do this. Oh, you it's had been no great. warning. I'm so happy. I just, I really admire the way you think. And I, I always have since I learned about you. And I'm so happy to get the chance to, to hear some of that kind of in a back and forth uh, way. So thank you so much for doing it. Well, thank you. I'm very flattered. And, uh... And I appreciate you asking me, and I, I love I love talking. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of A Brief Chat. Don't forget to go to patreon.com slash chat to become a member. For a dollar a month, you get early access plus travel essays and photos. For $5 a month, you get the essays, the photos, the early access, and a monthly bonus episode. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Beep.